You're listening to a C3 Victory podcast. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au. month has been unexpected. Right? Got it? Unexpected. All kind of things happen that are unexpected this time of year. But let me relay a story to you about the unexpected. It might surprise you. So let me, let me read it a little bit. I got it from Google. Google knows all. <laughs> used to be the day when I used to have to go through hundreds of books and pages and flipping pages. And particularly when I'm searching out the Greek I've got this series of about, it's a 15-set volume in my office, costs $1,000. Every Greek word from Alexander the Great through to uh, when they stopped using it. And I'd try to search out stuff for the scriptures. Now I just push a button. Tell me Logos. Tell me Logos. Even a little Greek guy on my computer tells me how to say it. <laughs> Which is cool, isn't it? Simon liked it. All right, let me read this story. Father who had returned home from the war settled back into life in England. Sometime later, he decided to invent a story, a fantasy, that would entertain his four children. It it would be a tale of personal growth and heroism. He never expected his stories to be popular, but by sheer accident, a book, which he had written for his own children, came in 1936 to the attention of Susan Dagnall, an employee of the London publishing firm George Allen & Unwin, who pursued him and persuaded him to, to submit it for publication. When it was published a year later, remember this 1937, the book attracted adult readers as well as children, and it became popular enough for publishers to ask this father to produce a sequel. This sequel became immensely popular in the 1960s and has remained so ever since. I remember the 60s. Who remembers the 60s? Oh, Jim, you remember everything. You're omniscient. I'm just glad you're not omnipresent. I couldn't handle you in my bedroom. Scrub that off the recording. Anyway, so 1960s, here we go. Uh, it, it ranked as one of the most popular works of fiction of the 20th century, judged by both sales and reader surveys. So here we go. I think we got this one up on screen there, Richard. In, ni- in a 1999 poll of Amazon.com, uh, .com, uh, customers judged it to be their favorite book of the millennium. Wow. In in the 2003 Big Read survey conducted by the BBC, it was found to be the UK's best-loved novel. And no, it's not Harry Potter, thank God. Anyway, and even Aussies, you voted. Australians voted it as my favourite book in a 2004 survey conducted by the Australian ABC. You're wondering what it is. The writer was John Ronald Ruel Tolkien. His first book was The Hobbit, followed by, I told you Jim knows everything, Um, followed by a sequel called, right, and how many were there? Three, three volumes, and they were made into a trilogy of movies, 2001 to 2003, who saw them? Most people in here, and if you haven't, you should, but what you might not be aware of is that Tolkien had a a strong Christian faith, which played a, listen to this, you might not be aware of this. His faith played a significant role in the atheist C.S. Lewis coming to Christ. And they became the closest of friends. And Tolkien says this about his book, The Lord of the Rings. To him is one book, three volumes. And he said this, The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. 
unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. For the religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. It's there through and through. You can see it throughout all the movies. You can pick it. But especially in the third movie, what's it called? Return of the King. Now, Return of the King pointed out on the net, sparknotes.com says this. Yeah, all right. Told you, net knows everything. Aragorn emerges as a Christ figure. Aragorn represents the eschatology of Christ. That's a big word. It means the, second, the theology of the second coming and the end times. The belief that Christ will return to establish a kingdom on earth for his faithful. That's what that movie was about, symbolizing that. So for us as Christians, this is known as the second advent. Hmm. There's not just the advent, there is the second advent, the return of Christ, the return of the king. And when we're thinking about things unexpected, this is one of the most unexpected things that's going to happen in history, the return of the king. You know, if you think about the first advent, the birth of Christ, it just totally caught people off guard. It's interesting, they were just shocked, they were caught off guard, the details confounded and confused them, and yet Paul said in Galatians, when the time was right, people look at history and said, it couldn't have been the worst time in history for Jesus to come. And yet, from God's perspective, it was just the right time. Everything was set up for the coming of Jesus to the planet. And so it will be for the second. But what will also be so is that people will be caught not expecting him to come. Totally unexpected about his return. And the issue is this. You don't hear people talking about Jesus' return today. It's become a little bit of an embarrassment because it hasn't happened. We hear so much about it. And I remember when I first got born again, there was all these charts they had on church walls. And we didn't have PowerPoints back then, but all of the details and everything. This is going to happen. And that's going to happen. And the beast and the false prophet. And it's so scary. And what it really did is it made people forget what it was all about. And and so it became a little bit embarrassing. Well, it hadn't happened. And so you don't hear people talking about Christ's return today. It's the unexpected return even the church puts this on the back burner as if it has very little if any relevancy for us today don't talk about that it's embarrassing just talk about stuff like how to here's three points to have good finances and five points to have a good marriage you notice it takes more points to have a good marriage than good finances (laughs) especially from the husband's point of view first point understand your wife nothing else matters after that right So we've gotten onto all of these things that are so relevant and topical that we've forgotten something that is extremely powerful. And and it should be preached because at this time of the year, we shouldn't only talk about the birth of Christ, the arrival of the king. And we certainly shouldn't stop talking about his life as the servant king and his death as the savior king, which we've looked at the last few years. But you need to know that Advent is about a complete blueprint, not just a piece of it. It's about his birth, his life, his death, and his return. As far as God looks at it, he goes, no, look, you know, Jesus is, I got to figure out a plan to send Jesus back because they killed him. And it didn't work the first time. His coming the first time kind of got messed up, so I got to have a second coming. It's all one big blueprint, plan from the beginning inside and out. God has a purpose for this thing. And if you understand this purpose, it'll revolutionize your life, I'm telling you. 
when you see the whole picture of the advent, man, it just, it shows you his plan and his passion from the beginning. One piece of it alone doesn't quite make sense. Think of it. A baby born in a stable? Is this just about gift giving? Well, some people, think, most of our country think it is. A servant living his life humbly to attend to the needs of others? Well, those who believe in servanthood do. Or is it only about humility and service? Or is it about a Messiah who came only to die on a cross? Give his life so that for a cause. Is it about a sacrifice? Well, it's all of that, but it's more. Because Advent is fully complete when you expect the rest of it that he's coming again. I'm telling you, the return of the king. He's coming again. And when he does, I'm telling you, he will set up a kingdom on this earth that, that people have been longing for for millennium. And the, this time when he comes, I'm telling you, there are not going to be gifts given. And he's not going to come to serve. And he's certainly not going to be silenced by people trying to kill him. This time he comes as a conquering king. Amen. I'm telling you, it's going to be a, we can say amen, but it's going to be a dreadful day when it happens. Dreadful for some. Because this, kind, this time when he comes, he's not going to be found in a manger or seen riding a donkey or nailed to a cross. I want you to listen to the words of, yeah, we talked about him last week, John, one of the sons of thunder who said, put me next to the throne, I'm ready to usher in that kingdom. Well, John got revelation. This, there's a bigger picture than just what's happening now. And he writes probably the most cryptic book in history, the book of Revelation. I've had people say, Keith, why don't you preach on Revelation? I said, well, I will when I get to heaven. I'll understand it then. But there are some parts that are very clear. And so this guy who was jockeying for position, yeah, let me be big in the kingdom of God, he gets a vision. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, behold, bang, stop what you're doing. Take a good look. He's coming with clouds. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of clouds, I think of puffy stuff, you know? The little angels sitting on a cloud playing harps and all that. Wrong picture. Absolute wrong picture. Because when he left the earth, he left with clouds. And he didn't just leave. Where did he go? He went to the right hand of the Father, a place of authority and identity. The King. The King. So when he comes again, he is coming with this identity and with this authority as the one to bring the kingdom. That's what it means with the clouds. So lose your little pictures of cotton balls and stuff. So he goes on and says this, And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. There'll be no Christmas trees and presents and celebrations. He actually said, you ought to actually find rocks that are open and crawl inside the hole and ask the rocks to cover you. Hmm, that's nice around Christmas, isn't it? All the tribes of the earth will mourn. This is not going to be an enchanted time like Christmas. It's for those who have rejected him again and again and again. It's going to be a dreadful time. We've got to speak this message. Because it's not just about love and grace. It's also about authority and a kingdom. He says, even so, amen, let it be. Jesus replies, I am the Alpha, the beginning, the Omega, the end. 
the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You know, that statement alone, that is enough to say he is God of very gods. Before everything was, he was there. And when everything finishes, he's there. And you might think he's gone now, but he is still here. And near the end of his earthly ministry, you know, Jesus is ramping things up. He's starting to talk about his death. He's getting his disciples ready. They're getting unsettled. But he didn't just talk about his death. He talked about his departure. In my father's house, there's a lot of homes. I'm going to prepare you one. And they got unsettled. What do you mean? You're leaving us. Absolutely, I'm leaving you. But if I leave, I will come back, I will come back and receive you to myself. I'm coming again. And so he got them ready for his return. And for many people, this is going to be an unexpected return. Why? Because life goes on as normal. Things just seem normal. Day by day, everything is normal. Nothing out of the blue happens. We see the occasional little terrorist thing or we see an earthquake or whatever. But life goes on. And yet, in the message version, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus starts talking about it's going to shift. One day, normal stops. As you know it, that is. And so, Matthew writes and he says this, the arrival of the Son of Man will take place in times like Noah's. Before the great flood, everyone was carrying on as usual, having a good time right up to the day Noah boarded the ark. They knew nothing until the flood hit and swept everything away. Suddenly, bam, it happened. They thought life will just go on. Don't you find it interesting over the last maybe decade how many end of the world Movies have come out. There must be something in the heart of humanity that says, this thing cannot keep going as it is. Something is going to break. Something's going to shift. We know it deep down inside us. We just hope it doesn't happen until we're gone. Because we know it's not going to be pretty. Jesus said, the Son of Man's arrival will be like that. Life will just be going on. Two men will be working in the field. One will be taken. Bam! The other one left behind. Two women will be grinding at the mill. In other words, they're just working. They're doing life and bang, one's taken. The other one's left and gone, what is that all about? And people just live as if everything continues as it always has until suddenly something happens. You'll go to work day after day. Maybe think about this first advent. Scurry through the malls, last-minute shopping for that present, which I'm still waiting for the list from my wife. She's doing this to torture me this year because she knows I hate the crowds. Absolutely hate them. When I go through the mall, it's like, make a path, get out of my way, I'm coming. I run over old women and babies, I'm telling you. And she's just held on to that list, and next week, you're going to end up with nothing, you know. Anyway, we go from one Christmas party to another... And we look, man, we go, oh, come on, holidays. This has got to stop. And yet the whole time we ignore the truth that suddenly something's about to happen. And it could happen any minute. I'm telling you, the next thing on God's, on God's calendar is this next advent. There's nothing left to happen. And it could happen any moment. But things just gone as they seem, normal. And the, the worst thing you could do is try to predict it. People over time have tried, who got the movie? 2012, The Great Flood. You notice they made three arcs to save humanity? Isn't that interesting? And yet Jesus said this, 
But the exact day and hour, no one knows that. Not even heaven's angels, not even the sun. He said, man, I don't even know. Only my father knows this. So stop trying to predict it. No, is it Notre-Dameus and all these prophets and stuff trying to say, it's going to happen like this and here are the details. I'm telling you right now, power is not found in the details. Listen to me. Empowerment is not found in knowing when it's going to happen and everything that's going to happen around it. Christianity itself has gotten so, some sectors of Christianity has gotten so absorbed with the details, they can't even agree on the details, and yet the details become everything. Listen, just because you don't know the details doesn't mean it's not real. I don't know what a million dollars looks like, but I know it's real. If you said to me, you know, if you got all the hundreds in Australia that would make up a million dollars, what do they look like front and back? I don't know. I just know it's a green plastic bill. That's all I know. But it's interesting how people and churches get infatuated with knowing the spectacular things around his coming. I've had people say, Keith, why don't you preach all those details? Because I'm not smart enough to know all of them. And, and not only that, there's so many opinions about it, you'd be so confused, you'd never come back. <laughs> Roll out the charts. This is going to happen, that's going to happen. And, that, and there's so many people disagree with, oh, no, no, you got that in the wrong place, it needs to move over there. And it's crazy. Just because they focus on the minute details doesn't ensure they're ready for it to happen. False security. It, by some kind of stupidity, people think, if I understand the chart, I'm ready. Every detail about it. And if they're not careful, they're going to miss the most important thing about his coming. When I was in the States some years ago, I got a lift from someone. I'm obviously not saying who it is, just in case they listen to the podcast. I have to be careful. I hear people out there now going, heard your podcast. I went, oh, golly, did I say anything about them? <laughs> you know, you can, become, you can become an example of grace in one of my sermons, and one day you'll smack me for that. So I, I once knew a man. Okay. This person wasn't born again, and I got a lift from them. I'm in their car, and I look down, and bang, there's the CD series Left Behind. Remember that? I would love to have the tithe only off the, the content, the books, the CDs, everything, the movies of Left Behind. The, 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 the originator of Left Behind series made so much money off of it that he built a professional indoor ice hockey arena at the university where we went. That was just a gift, not everything. He never has to be paid again the rest of his life because people are infatuated with details left behind. So I thought to myself and said to this person who gave me the ride, why in the world do you listen to that? I thought I'd get a chance to do something with it. And his response surprised me. He said, oh, I'm really interested in the details because I get a sense of security from the details. I'm going, what? Are you kidding? Listen, power and security doesn't come from the details. And knowing them, it comes from the revelation of who is coming. Don't miss that. I mean, they missed it the first time. Just at the right time, God sent his son. Bang, not in a fanfare as a king, but a baby born of a young girl. Who's coming? You know what Jesus called himself in Matthew? More than any other title, he gave himself. You know what it was? Not the son of God, not the savior, not the Christ. Others called him those things. You know what he called himself more than anything else? Son of man. I'm going, what? You're more than that? What does that mean? Get this revelation who the Son of Man is. 
You know, more than 80 times in the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. 29 times alone in Matthew. Son of Man, is a, it's, you've got to kind of understand the background and the, what the culture he's talking into because as a Jew, they fully understood that phrase, Son of Man. Let me read it to you out of a commentary by Utley. It says this, it was an Hebraic phrase. Come on, let's come up with it. You with me? Richard, wakey, wakey, thank you. No, Richard's good. It's the heat up there getting to him. I've been in that box. Oh, my goodness. They're, they're in the hot box up there. Our tech guys do a good job, don't they? That it's never seen, but always make things good. Okay. It was an Hebraic phrase referring to a human being. Psalms call the Son of Man just a human. Ezekiel, the prophet, calls him human. But because of its use in Daniel, where the Ancient of Days is approached by the Son of Man, it takes on divine qualities. Therefore, this term combines the humanity and the deity of Jesus. We're now not just talking a person. We're now not just talking a figure of history. We're actually talking the Lord of creation. But why in the world did he have to become a son of man? Because it was the son, it was a man who lost it. It had to be a man to regain it. However, as a man, he didn't have the authority nor the ability to regain it, so he had to be God. So he, but, but it's unfair if God takes it back from the devil because it's, it's, it's just no competition. So a man lost it. How, it's not right for you to get it back, God. So he had to be the God-man. Because you see, as the God-man, Jesus, as the Son of Man, Jesus identifies with broken humanity. Even though he never sinned, he realized what we lost. Listen to me. It's not only sin that's part of what was lost. What was lost was life. So what happened to him? Excruciating torture and death. God can't go through that. This is one of the things that throws other religions into a spin. How can you say God died? God didn't die. The Son of Man died. But it was God who paid for the sins. And only God could pay for the sins. This is a mystery. I, I can't explain it. This is something that's in the God realm. This is in the, spirit, in the spirit realm. I can't explain it, but I know it happened because he came and became part of a broken humanity that was lost, that needed to be saved. But while he's on the cross and he's paying for our sins, you know that God alone is, is making a sacrifice for our sins. John said, there's the Lamb of God who's going to pay for our sins. And so you see, this Jesus, the Son of Man who's returning, he, he's not coming as a babe or a servant or even a martyr. He's coming as the unexpected king, the return of the king. Man, if, if I had time, I'd read Revelation 19, verse 11 for you. It says, now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. He who sat on him was called faithful and true. Oh, my goodness. I started reading some of this stuff last night. Something inside me just, I felt like I had this something in me that I, I can't explain it. I mean, I haven't thought about this and read this stuff. I just think, what do the people need the most? It's not just what you need the most. It's what you need to know and hear and see also. You don't just need to know about your taxes and your marriage. and this. You need to know who's in control. You need to know who's coming back. You need to know who is king of kings. And I started reading this. And it's like, oh, God, the Holy Spirit just started moving on me like, oh, almost like I couldn't breathe. He's faithful. He's true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. I want to tell you something. 
every opposition you face one day is going to come under his judgment and he is going to war against it. That day is coming. That day is coming. I don't want to keep going on this. Golly, it just could stop on that as it is. So in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, Jesus said, all right, guys, here's the deal. You're still here. Stay awake. Be alert. You have no idea when your master will show up. No clue. And even though things go on as normal and we might want to predict it and get caught up in all the details of it, we need to be prepared for it. It's going to happen. I keep praying, oh God, come soon. I don't want to go back to the dentist. That's one of my prayers. (laughs) You know what I mean? Are there any dentists in here? I don't want to offend you. But they're the ultimate torturers in the Western Hemisphere. And they smile and they put this big thing in your gob to make sure you can't say anything back. And you can't bite them. I used to try to bite them. Now they put this thing in there. Ah, you know. God, come back before the dentist does. Anyway. But are we prepared for it? And preparation is the key for the rest of chapter 24 and all of chapter 25. Remember, he's, getting, he's almost about to be betrayed and crucified. What's he spend most of his time talking about? His return. And he gives three parables, some say even four, to drive this home. The, the owner and the thief, the faithful and the wicked servant, the wise and the foolish virgins. All of these are, t- in some way or another, to tell us, get ready, it's going to happen. And it's going to happen when you think it's not going to happen, when it's so unexpected, and you might even be asleep. Wake up. And the owner and the thief, Jesus said this, but understand this. And when Jesus says that, he's about to tell us something we can know. Understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have, had, would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man, there it is, the Son of Man is going to come at an hour when you do not expect Him. This is about keeping watch. This is a word to those who are not expecting His coming. Paul takes this wording to a church suffering called Thessalonica. You know what he says? You know very well. In other words, you're going through a tough time. Hang in there because you know that it's going to happen like a thief in the night. Stay awake. Stay alert. Because if you're not alert and expectant, it's going to catch you by surprise and the result's not going to be good. Second parable, the faithful and the wicked servant. Now it gets tough. You think that one's kind of, this one gets tough. Because there's more to expectancy than just sitting watching. I'm watching the clouds. I need to go to the toilet, but I'm watching the clouds. Can you hold on a minute? Some Christians, that's all they do is sit and watch, wait. Next parable says there's more to it. He said, you've got to stay active. It's not about waiting. You know, it's not this stupid wishful thinking, get me out of this world, it's horrible, the dentist is trying to get me, so forth. No, 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 no. We are not supposed to have a rescue mentality. Listen to me. We're supposed to have an overcoming mentality in this world. Here's the parable, verse 45. 
A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. Remember, it's a parable. It's a story to get a truth home. If the master returns, finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth. The master will put that servant in charge of all he owes. But, three-letter word we hate to hear, but what if the servant is evil and thinks, my master won't be back for a while? And he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. The master will return unannounced and unexpected. And he will, ooh, this is good. He will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. People think, oh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Remember the song, the prayer? He's not coming back meek and mild. He's coming back with vengeance, war, justice and judgment. And people think, look, if I miss it, I'll somehow convince him I wasn't that bad and he'll let me in. This parable is to those who take God's gifts for granted, especially the gift of life. And he's saying, you've got to be diligent with what I gave you. Because real life isn't about how much fun and pleasure and profit I can get out of it. Life is about making the most of it for good. And people who believe there's no returning king are going to be shocked when he comes back and he calls them into account even for their life. And Jesus is telling them, if you waste your life in pursuit of wrong things, thinking I'm not coming back, it is going to cost you and the cost is high. But for those who are faithful with life, you're rewarded. Now, you need to know this, this parable is primarily talking about what people do with Jesus, whether they believe in him or not, and live their lives according to that. But it can also apply to followers. Christians, too, should honor him by being faithful with the gifts he's given us. If you go all the way to the end, to chapter 25, verse 14 and following, he's talking about the talents. Be faithful with what I've given you. We can't sit idly back and wait for his return. He's left us with gifts and responsibilities. And when he comes back, he's going to call us into account. He judges and makes war, it says in Revelation. So we ask the question, were we faithful with the gifts he gave us? Did we serve? Did we build people up? Were we responsible with his command to make disciples and advance his kingdom to the ends of the earth? Hmm. Be diligent. But then there's the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Probably better, I should say, the bride, bridesmaids. It actually says the bridegroom didn't show up when they expected him, and they all fell asleep in the middle of the night. You know what that's representative of? When it's late, it's been a long time, and they don't expect it anymore. So they fall asleep. Sounds like some church people. Someone yells out, he's here, the bridegroom's here, go out and greet him. Now, I don't know, I don't have time to read the whole story, but there's ten of them. Five of them have made enough preparation for a long wait. And five of, the, five of them only did just enough to be a little bit comfortable for a while. In tradition, what they're supposed to do, the bridegroom comes to the bride's house. Unlike a wedding today, goes to the bride's house and it's a big fanfare. Bridegroom goes to the house, and all of a sudden, there are bridesmaids waiting as attendants, and they have torches. They have lamps. 
The bridegroom is to take the bride and the bridal party back to his house and shut the door, and the festivities go on for days after that. And they are led and they are, they are guided by the light of the bridesmaids. So, girls, it's no more about flowers, it's about light. But you know what light represents here, don't you? Life. That's what light represents. And so what happens is they, five of them are smart and go, hey, this could take a while. Let's stay ready. Let's have enough life to make it good when he comes. But then there's the other five going, nah, let's just get by. Sounds like people who just kind of occasionally show up to church, Christmas, Easter, C&E Christians. You know, even in the, before the New Testament was finished, the church was riddled with people who called themselves Christians, but they weren't really believers. And I know that sounds a contradiction, but by name, you can tick on a, on a census box, I'm a Christian, but do you really trust him with all your life? And this is what he's addressing. There are some who are ready for Jesus to come back and those who think they are ready because they are religious. The bridesmaids who are wise are the ones who make sure they're prepared and they're ready for a long time. Their light, their life was going to stay active because they're prepared. And this speaks of Christ being fully in our life and we persevere in that until he comes. There's two qualities in the New Testament that have just about been lost and it's being faithful and persevering. Bridesmaids who were foolish thought they had enough to get by with. In other words, we got just enough oil, just a bit of religion in our life that might qualify us to go in for the party when it happens. And they soon found out it wasn't enough because their lamps were out. They wake up there. There's no life. So they say to the girls who've got it more than enough, give us some of yours. And they go, can't do that because life is not transferable. You've got to have it yourself. God does not have grandchildren. He only has children. You can't get in there because of parents' faith or somebody else's faith, but only your faith. Life doesn't come because you've got a little bit of oil, a little bit of religion in your life. Life comes because of faith and trust in Him and Him alone. And not just a now faith, yep, prayed the prayer. You know, nowhere in the New Testament it says by praying a prayer you get into heaven. I hate to shock you, but if somebody asks you, are you really a child of God? And you go, yeah, I prayed the prayer. That doesn't make you a child of God. You know what makes you a child of God? Total trust in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. He is the son of God and God the son who came to earth and died on a cross to pay for our sins. He was buried. He resurrected from the dead. He wasn't just a martyr and a savior who died. He is a living Lord who lives forevermore and he is coming again. Now here's the deal. It says, I think verse 11 and 2, much later, the other virgins, the silly ones, showed up and knocked on the door. So they went out and bought a bit more oil. <gasps> Quick, let's do something religious so we can get it. And they go and knock on the door. Let us in. We now have some religion. The master said, do I know you? I don't think I know you. Didn't Jesus say that way back in chapter 7? Lord, didn't we do all this religious stuff in your name? And he said, I don't know you. Even doing things in the name of religion doesn't ensure that we're a child of God. 
So what's this about? It's about staying the course. This is a word to all of us, especially to those who, who, listen, have given up or thinking about giving up. Man, it's a long time. This, this road, this being a Christian is a hard thing. I'm going to tell you, the only way to make it is by the power of His grace in our, in our life. By the Holy Spirit living within us, giving us life every day. It's not a one thing at an altar, at a crusade, or a camp, or a conference. It is a life in Jesus. And this is what he's saying. Don't just get enough oil so that you think, yeah, I think I'll squeeze in. Get baptized and soaked in life. Jesus Christ. Got to choose it for yourself. And you know what? It's so common today for people to have a belief in God without fully surrendering their life to Him. I know this sounds hard, but Lord, have mercy. Somewhere we've got to sit up and be honest and go, there is another coming of a king, and it is reckoning time. It is not a time for gifts and celebration. It is a time to make sure you are on your knees going, oh, God, I know I'm saved, and I know I've got your life. I've been that way for 40 years. I didn't just kind of duck in and out of church when it was convenient. People think we're crazy like that. Think I'm a fanatic. Okay, I'll wear that. Fanatic just means somebody who's really excited about what they're a fan of. I'm a fan of Jesus Christ. I don't apologize for that. He's got a better track record than, dare I say it, Nate's got the weekend off better than the Jets. So here's the deal. Knowing about God, like the five virgins, can lull you into a false sense of security. Listen, churches are filled with people who think they're okay just because of some little religious thing. And I'll tell you, it'd be a fearful thing one day to hear him say, I'll tell you the truth, I don't know you. Who are you? I'm the one that prayed the prayer that day at the end of a sermon. Yeah, so what? That's a nice thing to do, but do I know you? He didn't ask, do you know him? He asked, do I know you? Isn't that interesting? Because when you come to Jesus Christ and you get life in him, you don't just get life in him, you get fused with his life. And he knows you. And so while there's still opportunity, we need to make sure, I I trust you. I surrender to you. I'm not just somebody who's a bit religious. I'm not just a church attender. And you could sit back like the virgins and go, why is this taking so long? Man, he said he was coming and it's been a long time. Well, listen, he also said it's going to take a while. That's the point of this parable. He kind of hinted at it's going to be a long time before this takes place. And his, his apostles finally still got it. You know, they finally got it. Peter writing to the church in his second letter. Because some in the church, a few decades later. How many of you have been a Christian more than three to four decades? I have. Raise your hand. That's an awesome thing. Golly, that's good. Um, Several decades later, Peter's finding this in the church. Sometimes we can't tell. You know, even in the book of Hebrews, the writer goes, man, we can't sometimes tell the difference between the attenders and the real believers who've been changed. So Peter writes this and says, 2 Peter 3, verse 3, he says, first of all, You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. 
Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. I'm not going to get uptight about this. So why is it taking so long? I'll tell you why. Verse 9, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Time is irrelevant to God. God exists above and beyond time. Time is a created thing. It's, you know, God looking at time is like you and I looking at a ruler. It's got a beginning, it's got an end, and it's got measurements in there, but it's created. It's not infinite. And so a day with God is like a thousand years. And you go, well, flipping heck, I've only got about 70 years on the earth. I don't live for a thousand years. Why is he taking so long? Glad you asked, because he said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. It's not about slackness. He is patient with who? You. Not wanting anyone to perish. Why is he waiting so long? Patience. Compassion. He didn't send his son to die for a few. He sent his son to die for the world. Listen to me. Oh, we're okay. We're going to make it. Yeah, okay. What about all of them? Look, look at it again. He is patient with you. Doesn't say he's patient with them. Although he is, he's patient with us. Why? Because we're not getting it. That people are perishing. Even people sitting on our seats week after week doing the religious thing. Some of them are perishing because there's this big blockage right in front of you that's blinding you saying, I'm going to make it. I prayed a prayer. No. Wake up. Wake up. You don't want him to say when he comes back again, do I know you? I don't understand that thing, just a prayer or a decision card or whatever. I understand trust in me. Surrender to me. And you didn't do that. And you don't do that. He delays his return because he is patient with us to make sure we know that we know that we know. And that we help others do the same. Why don't you stand to your feet for a minute? He's not willing for any of us to perish. Man, you go, golly, this is a hard message before Christmas, Keith. Yeah, it's a strong one. But it's just as real as the birth and the death and the resurrection. And it's called the return. Don't get caught by surprise. Don't say, oh, I didn't expect that. Be prepared. Have his life fully in you. Stop the charade game of religion. Thinking, because I attend occasionally, I tip God with some money. I might do a good thing now and then. That somehow he knows you intimately. He, only, he is only going to know you intimately when you go, I am so sorry I have offended you. I am so sorry I sinned against you. I am so sorry you had to die and pay for my sins. My sins. Please forgive me. Come into my life and save me. Cleanse me. Father, by heaven's means and sake, receive me as your son. I know that Jesus died for me and I receive him now and I believe in him now. I don't want to just be religious. You know, when I got born again, religion just turned me off. I said, I see a lot of people like that and it's upsetting. If I can't be full on about it, I don't want to be in it at all. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean I've done everything just right since then. But I know that I know it's not because of a prayer or a baptism or a church attendance. It's because Jesus, this I know, 
For the Bible tells me, this I know, that he loved me so, and he died in my place. Thanks for joining us for the C3 Victory Podcast. We would love to see you at one of our services. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au or check us out on Facebook or Instagram.